Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 will be the main context. And for those of you who have never, I guess, studied this, these passages or studied this message, it's called the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount is something that you've heard many, many times if you've been inside of a Christian church. Um, and at a period of time, I didn't know what the Beatitudes meant. And the Beatitudes just means the blessings of Christ or the blessings that are handed down from Jesus Christ himself. And the Sermon on the Mount actually takes place in where we would call modern-day Syria. So Jesus Christ was actually uh, in the land, speaking to his disciples, teaching the people, casting out demons, healing people. And um, large and large crowds and crowds of people began to follow him. So in, in the midst of he was just doing his normal actions or his normal duties as a person or as Jesus Christ, what he normally does, teaching, casting out demons, healing people, Thousands and thousands and hundreds of hundreds of people noticed this and began to follow him. And he actually transformed living word into what he was actually doing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what did Jesus do? He was actually letting his good works shine. So Jesus, in the process of just ministering people, healing people, casting out demons, people saw this, they noticed this, and they wanted to be a part of it. And this is where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. He realizes people are following him everywhere he goes over the, over the country, over the city. He goes up to a hill and just begins to speak and teach to his disciples, knowing that many, many non-Christians or non-believers will probably be listening as well. So that's the text I'll speak to today. I'll open us up in prayer, and then we'll, and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak today. As usual, I just pray that I'm able to say exactly what it is you want me to say, and that we're able to receive exactly what it is what you want us to receive. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. So the Gospels. The Gospels to me are very interesting because when I first started receiving discipleship, the person who was discipling me, he always talked about the Gospels. Michael, you have to know about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And for me, it was just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I didn't see why he was bringing so much emphasis on the Gospels. And the reason it's called the Gospels is because it's the good news of Jesus Christ. But he was adamant. If you don't know anything else, this is where the New Testament starts. You have to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So in college, for years and years and years, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I mean, to the point he almost got on my nerves, but it stayed, it stuck in my head. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason it's so important is because it's the true account of Jesus Christ told by four different people at four different times. So you may say, that's nothing. I'll explain it this way. If the story of Jesus Christ were a lie, and four different people told it at four different times, the stories would not be the same. There would be errors. Some people would say one thing, another person would say something different. But what makes the gospel so powerful is told by four different people at four different times, and they're all telling the same exact story. So you say, that's, diff that's easy. Anyone can do that. Let's put that to the test right now. <laughs> We're going to play a game. Some of you may have heard of this game. It's called Snake, or it has many different names. I'm going to start with Lisa and James. I'm going to tell them something. And by the time it gets to the person in the front, we're going to see if that story is the same. All right? So to be fair to the adults, no kids are allowed. Because I don't want you to blame it on the kids when the story gets mixed up, right? <laughs> so to be fair to the adults today, well, I think you guys are old enough, so you're more than welcome to play. But let's say anyone under 10 years old 
It's not allowed to play. So Lisa, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to share it with you. James, I'm going to share it with you. Whisper to the person next to you, and it has to go through every person by the time it gets to the front. And we're going to see if this one little sentence makes it back to me exactly the way I gave it to, to the both of you. So let's remember, this text made it thousands and thousands of years, told by four different people, and the stories are the same. Matthew and Mark. Mike is wearing a blue shirt. That's it. Craig is wearing a blue shirt married to Angie. So, can, can you read this? Which one? The whole thing. Oh. Mike has a blue suit. Craig has a tan shirt, but Craig is married to Angie. Hmm. Wow. So, I think that example proves itself. So if the story of Jesus Christ were a lie told by four different people at four different times, they wouldn't have gotten the story completely correct. And that's why he emphasized to me over and over and over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the Gospels told by four different people at four different times recording their personal experiences with Jesus Christ. And the, and the texts are almost identical. So that's what makes the gospel so powerful. Um, and it's easy to share that when you're sharing the truth with people. So. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, sorry, forgive me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mount, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And when he opened his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to spend the majority of the time on verses 3 and 4, but we're going to go all the way through verse 16. We're going to spend a lot of time right now on verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So for years, I just read over this and kept going. And it wasn't until probably a couple of years ago, I said, what does blessed are the poor in spirit even mean? Right? What does that mean? One thing it means, are you completely dependent on God for everything that you do in your life? So let me break down, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you're someone who identifies yourself as flawed. You have sin in your life. And when the Lord reveals that sins to you, you're broken. And you go to the Lord in prayer just asking for forgiveness. You're not, you don't believe yourself to be perfect. You don't believe yourself to be holier than thou. You're looking at yourself saying, Lord, I am not perfect. I'm very flawed. There is sin prevalent in my life. And I need you. And I'm thank, thankful for your son that you gave me to deliver, to deliver me from these sins. So when he's saying someone is poor in the spirit, he's saying that person has recognized the sin in their life, the flaws in their life, and they're broken over that. They're broken over that continuously, and they continue going back to the Lord, asking for forgiveness. They're not ashamed about it. They're not depressed about it. They just recognize that that sin is present, and they're thankful that the Lord has given them a way out through their son, Jesus Christ. So do you have 100% dependency on Christ, or do you not? So, a lot of times the world would give us different meanings for the word blessed. And I'm not saying these examples I'm going to give you are wrong, but that's not what the Lord is talking about in this text. So the text does not say you are blessed if you're rich. You're blessed if you have a nice car. You're blessed if you have a huge bank account. You're blessed if you have a huge house. All those things are nice to have, 
But that's not what the Lord describes as blessed. That's what the world describes as blessed. Now, there's nothing against having money. There's nothing against having a nice car or house or all these things. There's nothing against that. But what the Lord is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord, the Lord is saying that person who recognizes they have sin in their life and they're calling on me continuously, they're blessed because their reward is the kingdom of heaven. The other thing I'll share with you is you should never be the source of your joy in the spiritual or the physical world. What do I mean by that? There's three types of people, and I'm probably a mixture of all three of those types of people. One person is a person who finds 100% of their joy in the Lord. 100% of their joy comes from the Lord. Person number two, their joy comes from their own achievements of what goals they've achieved or what they've accomplished. And the third person is their joy comes from how well they behave on their best Christian day. And I'll give you examples of each. So the first type of person who finds their joy in the Lord, that would be my mom. I call my mom every single morning. And sometimes I say, hey, mom, how's it going? And every single day, let me tell you what the Lord's done for me today. And for years, I would just get so frustrated and say, Mom, I'm calling to talk to you, right? I just want to talk to you. It's great the Lord's done these things, but I want to talk to Floria Holmes, right? I want to know, how is your day going? And she can never get to that point, well, the Lord did this, but how is your day going, right? And it was only after I truly understood this scripture, her joy was from the Lord, right? That's the only thing she could find joy in, and then the rest of the day would continue. So that's person number one. Person number two is a little bit of myself as well. You find joy when you achieve certain achievements, right? You get a new promotion or you, get, you achieve a new status in life or something you've been working on very hard to obtain and you've achieved it, right? That's person number two. And then person number three is me sometimes as well, right? I read my Bible this week. I discipled someone. I baptized someone. I'm ministering to people in the streets, and I feel really good about myself. But then the next week, or the next two weeks, I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I'm arguing with my wife. I'm going to bed at night without praying with my kids. And I start to get depressed or down, and I realize I made these mistakes. Or I watch a movie I shouldn't be watching, right? Or, or, or whatever it is, or I listen to, some, to a song on the radio I probably shouldn't be listening to. And I get depressed, and I start beating myself up. And what the Lord is saying is, Michael, you're finding joy in your Christian response or how well you are being a Christian, instead of remembering that your Christianity is built upon grace. No matter what you do on your best Christian day, that's still not worthy of me. The best Christian or the best person, if we were to look at the laws, the best the person who could follow the laws the best in the world, if they don't have Jesus Christ, they never see the kingdom of heaven. So regardless of how good you think you are, Scripture says your greatest works are as filthy rags to him. So it's not how good you are as a Christian. It's the fact that even those times when you do make mistakes, you realize you are forgiven, you recognize that, you go to the Lord in repentance, and on your best Christian day, on your worst Christian day, it should not lead you to depression or suicidal thoughts or all these other things to where the Lord still honors you when you think you're doing well or when you not think you're doing well, right? For the simple fact that we have grace and we accepted His Son, Jesus Christ. So please never look at joy. Um... You should never be the source of your joy in the spiritual or physical world. Always look to the Lord for your joy. And the last thing I'll say is sin. How do you respond to sin? And what I mean by that, especially to the fathers of the room, who should be the leaders of the house, 
When is the last time you've wept over your sin? And when I say wept, when is the last time the Lord has revealed something to you and you completely isolated yourself on your knees, crying out to the Lord, asking for forgiveness? When is the last time you've wept over your sin? Now, do I weep and cry over my sin all the time? Absolutely not. Should I? Probably yes. But there are times where I do weep and I'm broken over what the Lord has revealed to me. But I'm going to ask women and men, but especially the fathers, when is the last time you have wept over your sin? And if you can't remember the last time you've wept over your sin, it's one of two reasons. Either you're perfect or you're numb to it. Sin doesn't bother you or it doesn't affect you anymore. And either one of those reasons frightened me, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're perfect, that means you're Jesus Christ and I didn't even recognize you. So I'm fearing for myself. But if that's not the reason and you're just numb to sin, then please reach out to the Lord and ask the Lord, why doesn't sin affect you anymore? And the last thing I'll say before we go on to verse 4, because it actually leads us into verse 4. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Baptist church in the United States, and I would, there would be the people in the church, the elders, the men or the women, and they would be what I would call the holiest people in the church. They would always be praying and crying and worshiping and speaking in tongues and all these things, right? But in the United States, we have these things called altar calls. And an altar call is where at the end of church, they ask people to come up. You can either get... You can either have people pray over your life. If you're, if you're a non-Christian, you can accept Christ at that time. Or if you want to be baptized, you can come up and get information on baptism. And when the Lord would, or when the, when the pastor would ask the people to come to the church who wanted prayer, the same people would go up every single time. The people that I thought were the holiest, um, the most religious people, they would go up to the church crying, just asking for prayer, just praying. I'm thinking to myself, why do you need prayer? You're perfect, right? But the people that I saw in the community that were doing whatever they wanted to do, right, going to clubs, drinking, smoking, having provocative sex, the people that I knew that were in the community doing whatever they wanted to do, they would never walk up there and ask for prayer. And what someone explained to me at that time, that's the difference between church membership and someone who's truly been converted to Jesus Christ. Right? So the power of sin and the power of a Christian is we recognize that we're not perfect. We do have sin. And I have just as flaws, I have just as many flaws as that person in the world. The only difference is I understand those flaws and I'm constantly giving that to Jesus Christ and asking for forgiveness. Right? And that's the only thing that separates us from the world is we have Jesus, we recognize the sin in our life, and we're constantly giving that to him in repentance. Chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning, such a powerful word. It's easy for us to understand mourning when we're talking about death. If someone dies, we mourn. And something I really appreciate Craig for is he also mourns over sin and all these other things. Craig's someone who's taught me how to show compassion, which is something I struggled with in the past. Right? But just learning from Craig and being under Craig's leadership, I've learned that through his teaching. So mourning. Why should we mourn? As a human, as a Christian, why should we mourn? Because it's natural. Um, and I'll show you what I mean by that. I started to do an example with Craig. I'm not going to do it because it probably would have been extremely painful. right? But I was going to ask Craig to come up here and stick his arms out. And I was just going to pinch him right underneath his arm. 
right? And I was going to say, don't you move or make a sound until it hurts. And how long do you think Craig would have stood there? Probably not too long, right? He probably would have screamed or said stop or gave me a very distinct look because it's a natural reaction. He had pain, and that would have been, that would have been a natural reaction for him to scream or yell or whatever he wanted to do. Mourning is a natural reaction. For those of us who choose not to mourn, we're holding back our natural reactions that were given to us as humans. So not only should we mourn over death. Psalm 119, 136. I'll read it to you. This is, uh, was written by David, King David. Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So what David is saying, he's mourning over sin. So when he sees sin present in people's life because they're not keeping to the commandments of the Lord, he mourns. He cries. He cries out. And that's a natural reaction. That's a very natural reaction. So as parents... Parents actually mourn very easily when their kids are probably not adhering to the laws or behaviors that they want them to demonstrate. But as Christians, that's not the only time we should mourn. If our communities are not developing the way we want our communities to develop, or our relationships, or friends, or coworkers, or employees, we should mourn. And that's a natural reaction. If you're crying for your coworkers in prayer, that's okay. If you're crying for your siblings, your sisters, your parents, your children, your friends, your enemies, that's a natural reaction. And when we don't have that response, we're holding back something that's very natural. As if when I pinched Craig under the arm, it would be impossible for him to have no emotion. So mourning is a natural emotion and an expectation of a Christian, and we should be mourning over death as well as over sin. Sin in our lives and sin in the lives of people that we come in contact with. And again, when we're mourning over this sin, it's not a mourning of judgment. It is never our responsibility to cast judgment, but it is our responsibility to mourn and actually want to bury that burden with that person through love. Right? Back to the book of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We can take out the word meek and put submissive. Blessed are the submissive, for they shall inherit the earth. Very powerful. And I'll tell you why. So submissive. It doesn't say blessed are the females that are submissive. It says blessed are the submissive. Submission is a responsibility of a Christian, male or female. Husband should, should submit to his wife. Wife should submit to, his husband, to her husband. Employers are to submit to the employee. Citizens are to submit to the government. Submission is a natural response as a Christian. Jesus Christ submitted to his disciples when he washed their feet. He also submitted to the world when he allowed them, when he allowed himself to be arrested and died on that cross. Jesus Christ is a king of kings, lord of lords, and could have done whatever he wanted to. But he submitted and allowed his body to be tortured in the way that it was. So submission, it is a Christian's responsibility to submit. And what does it say about submission? Five again, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
So what the Lord is saying here is the people who have great power today and mistreat people, you may have that power today and mistreat people. But the people who the Lord is going to allow to inherit the earth are the meek, are the ones who are willing to submit to that authority and serve. And a quote I often like to like to live by. If you really want to see a man's character, give him power. What does that mean? If you have an engineer, let's, let's say you're an engineer in a company, and when you first get on, you're an engineer and you have many tasks, you're probably very submissive. You do whatever your boss tells you to do. You, you come to work on time, you leave on time, all these different things. But once you become manager or director or vice president, how do you act? Now that you have that power, how do you act? Or once you become the principal of a school, or a lawyer, or a CEO, or a president, or a sultan, or all these different things. Once you achieve that power, is your character still the same? Or has it changed now that you have that power? And something I do with my employees at work whenever I'm out of town, I'll assign a different person to run the plant while I'm gone. All right? For the main reason, just to see what their character's like while I'm gone, while they have that authority. Some pass, some fail. I never let them know who passed or who fails, but it's a test. Right? To see, now that you have this power, are you still going to respect the people below you? Are you still going to honor them, serve them? Are you still going to respect them the same way you respect me? All right. So verse 5, again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So submission is a natural act, right? Whether you're a husband or a wife, employer, employee, everyone should submit to someone eventually. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So whenever I hear this verse, I often think about Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, all these different people, right? Maybe not Christians, but what you can identify in their life is they definitely had a thirst for righteousness. And what's interesting about these people, anytime you talk about these people in a certain context, people often want to highlight the bad things they've done as well. Let me tell you a secret. You will not find a single person in this Bible that, that, that hasn't done bad things other than Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Noah, Job, Jonah, any of them, Moses. You won't find a single good person. Craig, help me out. Who is the disciple? You will deny my name three times before the rooster crows. Who? Peter. Peter. Even someone who saw Jesus Christ every single day denied him three times, right? So when I hear the names of Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Mother Teresa, these are people who had a thirst and a hunger for righteousness. So as a Christian, do you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness? And you say, well, what does that look like? Easy, I'll tell you. When you see a homeless person, on, and again, I'm not telling you to go out and do these things. You have to look with inside yourself and see what your hunger or thirst is. But homeless people. Do you have a desire to feed that person, or do you just want to judge them and say, well, whatever you did to get in that situation, that's your fault? Or do you have a desire to feed them, right? Or widows um, um, whose, whose husbands have, have died, or orphans, or all these different things, or refugees. Do you have a hunger or thirst for righteousness? And a, a hunger and thirst since I moved to Asia that didn't exist before I moved here is sex slave trafficking, prostitution. So that's something I was 100% ignorant to in the United States. And I learned a lot about it since I've been, a, been in Asia. Human trafficking, prostitution because of human trafficking is huge. It's huge in the entire world. It's huge in Jehor Baru. For those of you who don't, do not know, I'm pretty sure you do. And I often have conversations with guys about it at work. 
Nusa Bastari Bukaninda is a haven for, right? The massage parlors, everything that's here, right? And it's just terrible to understand some of these women are forced into that lifestyle. Some of them want it, but it's human trafficking, right? And I do have a hunger and thirst to have whatever impact I can in that environment. Um, also, when I'm having conversations about my friends, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use uh, the, the Filipino ladies as an example. I have conversations with many of my friends about how they're treating their helpers, all right? And sometimes they're just treating their helpers, helpers terrible, right? And I have a hunger and thirst to say, guys, that's not right. Regardless of what you believe, they're people, they're women, and they deserve the same respect as everyone else. Um, so human trafficking, uh, child trafficking for organs, so many things that you can die for something, right? And I'm not saying die, but a hunger and thirst for righteousness is what's the cause that you're willing to die for? And I'm not saying go out and die, right? But what's the cause that you're so passionate about that you're willing to change your lifestyle to have an impact, to have an impact on it? Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that pretty much speaks for itself. Do you have mercy? Are you willing to forgive someone that has wronged you? And I'm going to pick on the wives for a second, because I'm up here speaking, and I can do that today, so thank you very much. Right? But this is one thing that men don't have as big of a problem with. So a man, if we have an argument with our wives in the kitchen, by the time we get to the bedroom, we forgot about it. It's over with. That happened in the kitchen, right? But a wife, if we have an argument in the kitchen, it goes to the bedroom, to the couch, to dinner, to the movies the next week. Three months later, we're on vacation. We're still talking about that argument. Wives, do you have the capacity to forgive, to have mercy? We make mistakes, and we're going to continue making mistakes. But are you going to forgive us? Or are you going to constantly throw that in our face over and over and over of how terrible we are, right? And absolutely, we don't put the dishes up and we miss the, we miss the dirty clothes hamper and all these things. Please give us mercy, right? And I'm not just asking for it. It's actually a commandment. It's that he's, Christ is actually asking for that, right? So I'm begging, please give us mercy, right? Do you have mercy? And guess what? If you do show mercy... Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, right? So it's actually a benefit for you to show us mercy and our flawedness, okay? So are you merciful? Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart is a tricky one, um, very tricky, because what the Lord is asking here is what are your intentions, so when you're engaging with people, when you're talking to people, what are your true intentions behind the scenes? When you're engaging in that business deal, are you engaging honestly or do you have intentions that are not desirable? When that beautiful woman walks into work the first day, are you really just introducing yourself to get to know her or do you have intentions? Um, when you're doing these things in the community or when you're having friends over, whatever it is that you're doing, what are your intentions? Are they pure in heart? Or do you have alternative reasons or alternative emotions? So please, always understand your intentions. If no one else can see your intentions, the Lord can. And he's always watching. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. What type of personality do you have? Are you a person who's always trying to bring peace, bring people together? I don't know what the equivalent Mandarin term is or Tamil or Malay, but are, are you a pot stirrer? Right? And a pot stirrer in the United States is someone who you're constantly trying to cause confusion. You're constantly trying to stir up trouble. You're gossiping. You talk about people behind their back. You're at work and right? you're just you're, you're, you're gossiping. Right? Are you a pot stirrer or are you a, pe- or are you a peacemaker? Right? You have to determine which you are. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, um, Chinese, Indian, whatever. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? It doesn't matter about what group you associate yourself with. Are you a peacemaker? And do you thirst for righteousness? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So some of you know there was a Christian pastor that was kidnapped about eight months to a year ago. I forget the time frame. He's still never been found in Malaysia. And that's terrible. But what does it say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to this day, we still don't know what happened to that pastor. We can't comfort his wife or his children in any other way than to tell them. Blessed is your husband because he was persecuted for righteousness sake. And please know that if he is dead, he's in the kingdom of heaven. And and that's probably the only comforting thing we can have when we're persecuted or killed in the name of Christ for doing his will to know that his promise to us is he's bringing us to heaven. Right? This is not someone else's quote. This is directly from Jesus Christ's mouth. That if we are persecuted, killed in his name for doing his will, we get to live in eternity with him. So, yeah, we may mourn over the death, but that person will receive the prize that we're all hoping for. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As a Christian, there will be babblings against you. People may call you holier than thou or you think you're better than other people or whatever these things are. What the Lord is saying here is protect your character. So people are going to talk about you. They may talk about you behind your back and family members may even outcast you. If, you're, if, you're a non, if your family is non-Christian and you give yourself to Christianity or if you're Muslim and you give yourself to Christianity or Buddhist give yourself to Christianity, your family may talk about you now. What the Lord is saying, let them talk. Do not change your character because they're talking about you. Do not rash out and start cursing and swearing or changing who your person is because you're still a reflection of Christ. Right. So people will talk about you as a Christian. Right. But protect your character, protect the identity of Christ at all times because we rise above that. So rise above the small talk. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is where the Lord starts reminding us, our reward is in heaven, guys. Uh, Our reward is not on earth. We're going to have many challenges, many trials. I hope each of you have the most prosperous life and you're healthy and you're financially stable and all of these things. But our true reward is not the promotion, it's not the car, it's not the house, it's not the job. Our true reward 
is eternity in heaven. You may live 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I don't know. But you're going to live an eternity in heaven. So these 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years is going to determine how you live eternity. And that alone is just very difficult to grasp because it's not a thousand years. It's not 5,000. It's not 20,000. It's eternity. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is the Lord saying here? Salt has certain characteristics. So this is going to be an interactive session. Someone, please give me three characteristics of salt. Anyone. It could be three different people. So what's one characteristic of salt? Salt? Salt. Salt. (laughs) It has flavor. Absolutely. Anything else? Preservation. It, It has the ability to preserve food. What else? It's white. Absolutely. Anything else? Sour. Right? So salt has these things. So what if salt could not preserve and if it didn't have any flavor and if it, it was black, right, and it was sweet, would it still be salt? Absolutely not. Once salt loses its characteristics, let's not pretend. You can't call it salt anymore. It's something else. So a Christian has certain characteristics. And the Lord tells you what those characteristics are in verses 3 through 11. And if you don't have those characteristics, you need to examine yourself. And that's, that's exactly what he's saying. Salt has certain characteristics, and when it doesn't have those characteristics, the only thing it's good for is being trampled under people's feet. As a Christian, if we don't have the characteristics identified in this text given to us by Christ himself, we're not Christians. It's very simple. If we do not have these characteristics or desire to have these characteristics, We're not Christians, and there's no use for us, right? And right after that, he says, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is this saying, guys? This text is so powerful because even with the salt example, the characteristics the Lord is talking about here, as a Christian, we have the power to heal relationships, diseases. Believe it or not, you have the power to heal diseases, marriages, racial tensions, bigotry, um, hate, all these different things. We have the power to heal that. Jesus Christ is not coming down to do it again. He had one plan. His plan was us. His second plan is judgment. So he's not coming again to intervene. We are his plan, and we actually have the power to heal all of these things, relationships, bigotry, racism, hate, all these things. And bigotry is a powerful word. A bigot is a powerful word. For those of you who do not know what a bigot is, a bigot is you dislike someone just because they don't think the same way as you. I think that's very dangerous. Right? You have Christians who dislike each other just because another Christian doesn't think exactly the same way they think. To where the Lord tells us that we're actually strong with our differences, right? 
Some people are made for prophesying and evangelizing and te- evangelizing and teaching, right? Some people are the arms. Some people are the legs. Some people are the head. But if a body was made of all arms, that would look retarded, right? Or all heads, head here, head here, head here, right? You would not want that. So we're strong in our differences. But a bigot says, if you don't think exactly like me, I don't want anything to do with you. And that's not, that's not a Christian, right? You're a Christian before you're black, before you're white, before you're Chinese, before you're Indian, before you're Malay, before you're anything. You're a Christian first, right? That's your first identity. After that, you can identify with your cultures and all these things, but you're a Christian first. Never forget that, right? And these texts, a lot of times people confuse the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a text to teach you how to become a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is a text to teach you how to be a Christian, how you should be as a Christian, what are the characteristics you should have as a Christian. So if you read this text and you can identify with any of it, examine yourself. If you need to have a conversation with me further, you can. But this text is saying, if you're calling yourself one of my disciples, a Christian, you should either A, have these qualities, or B, have a desire to have these qualities. No, you're not going to be perfect. Sin's going to be prevalent every single day in your life, but you should have a desire to have these qualities. And please remember the same way that people were just following Jesus around, just wanting to be in his presence because he was healing people, casting out demons, teaching the word. I can assure you, once you start demonstrating the lifestyle that he wants you to demonstrate, people are going to follow you as well. Wherever you go, they're going to be following around and wondering who you are, and they're going to be watching you. And your life's going to become an open book. They're going to watch everything that you do. And that's why your character has to uphold to what you're about to receive. So the last thing I'll say before we close, a lot of times people pray for blessings. I want this new house, this car, this job, this wife, this husband, all these things. And I want you to have those things. But if your character is not ready to receive those things, you're going to lose them. So if you're not prepared for that financial breakthrough and being rich, once you become rich, you're going to make some wrong decisions because your character wasn't prepared for it. Once you get that wife or that husband, if you're not preparing yourself today to be the wife or husband you want to be, and you get that wife or husband, and your character's not ready for it, you're going to lose that wife or husband. When you want that job to be vice president or CEO, and your character's not at the state it needs to be, you're probably not going to stay at that position long. Or you're going to be, um, uh, your failures are going to be very visible to everyone. So please start working on your character today, right? Uh, to receive the, the blessings that the Lord actually wants to give to you. So that's all I wanted to share with you all today. As usual, if you have any questions, please feel comfortable talking with me. Um, but that's all I have. We'll close in prayer. And then if Craig has anything after... We're done. Lord, I just want to thank you for allowing me to speak to the, to the church today. Um, as always, Lord, there are so many things that you revealed to us in our lives that we may be doing right, that we may be doing wrong. But I just ask in everything that we do, Lord, we seek you first. Whether we're looking for a job, what's, what school to put our kids in, which vacation to take, which house to buy, which car to drive, I pray that we seek you first uh, so we can always be operating within your will. 
Lord, I also pray that whatever challenges we're having within the church, there's people who are struggling with um, dengue or dengue. Please forgive the pronunciation. Um, there's people who are sick. Um, there's people who are trying to achieve certain statuses within their job and uh, people working on their marriages and people trying to develop relationships with their family members or children. Lord, just please be with those people. Answer their prayers and however you want those prayers to be answered. And Lord, just thank you for always protecting us, protecting this church. And I thank you for this church. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.